Father, thank you so much for this morning, and I thank you for spring and the warmer weather and, um, and just the reminder of new life. Um, I thank you for this space um, in which we can meet and study your word together and um, be challenged and changed and corrected as necessary. I thank you for these women that we are able to um, gather with, that we are able to journey with and to be um, in fellowship with. Uh, we are grateful that you don't ask us to walk alone, that you are with us and that you put um, us amongst one another. We are grateful for that. Father, we ask that you would um, guide and direct our conversation this morning, that our discussion would be pleasing to you, that as we uh, walk through another uh, topic that is a little bit difficult, that you would give us wisdom. Um, Holy Spirit, would you um, inform our understanding and um, our discussion and allow us to be pleasing to you? And mostly, Father, I ask that you would bring glory to yourself. Um, let us see you and see you only today. Um, would you uh, protect all of us from being distracted by the things uh, with which we came in this morning and also um, being distracted by ourselves or other people? Um, let us be able to focus um, on you um, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so this morning we are going to be looking at what Paul had to say about our responsibility as Christ followers to the civic governing authorities and the way our, we are to live in relation to one another. So the civic governing authorities and how we are to live it, um, in relation to one another. And that's kind of going to be our focus um, in Romans chapter 13. So before we dive into the actual passage, just a little bit more background. Um, at this point in our study of Romans, um, you might think, wow, she's got background every time she teaches. Um, <laughs> that's kind of one of my favorite parts, so we'll just be starting with a little bit more background. And it's kind of more of a reminder of what the setting is for the people that Paul is writing to. Um, at the time that the letter to the Romans was written, um, the status of Christ followers was largely on the margins of society. If you remember, um, about five or six years before uh, this letter is written, the Jewish Christ followers were expelled along with all of the other Jewish people from Rome. And during that time, because the Jewish people had been expelled, um, the church in Rome, um, and we've talked about this before as well, the church in Rome kind of lost its connection to the Jewish religion. Um, up until that point, Christ followers were considered just kind of a Jewish sect, and that was okay. They were acknowledged by the Roman government. Um, and then when the Jewish people were expelled and uh, the Roman Christ followers continued as the church, um, they were pushed to the margins of society and really um, they moved from being a recognized religion that um, was given um, the ability to gather, they moved from that to being then um, 
as I said, one on the margins, but also they were thought of um, very superstitiously. Um, they were thought of as an unacknowledged cult, and so they lost any protections that they would have had um, when they were considered part of the Jewish um, religion, a, a sect as part of the Jewish religion. So, and then when the Jews came back into Rome and the Jewish believers joined back to the Roman um, church, that then took the um, Roman church down even another level because now were they not only su superstitious, unrecognized cult, but they also had these kind of dregs of society, Jewish people, um, who were now coming back into Rome, um, joining in, and they were just um, outcasts and um, not well-liked by business um, businesses or family members, um, and kind of, um, it was okay then to mistreat the people of the way. Um, so, um, we need to keep that in mind as we consider our text today, that Paul was writing to a people, I'm sorry, um, Paul was writing to a people who knew what it meant to have governing authorities, the civil authorities, um, who didn't like them and would take any opportunity to um, inconvenience them, to rough them up, to um, take business away, to um, take homes. Um, there, was, uh, there was definitely some um, wrongful imprisonment. Um, there were some that were put to death. Um, the persecution of the believers in Rome at this point did not get, um, it was not nearly as severe as it would become in, um, in the coming years under um, Nero. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I don't think it's me either. Um, but the, um, so the, the church itself, the people who made up the house churches in Rome, um, would have definitely not thought of the Roman civil authorities as being for them. Um, they would not have thought of the Roman civil authorities as being supportive of them or um, conducting their business as the civil authorities um, would not necessarily always have the best interests of the Roman Christians at heart. So tuck that away. And now let's read through the first seven verses. Well, before we do that, I'm going to tell you this. As we move through the lesson, I want you to keep this main point of our lesson in mind. Our obedience in any situation stems from our devotion to the one true God and who he has revealed himself to be. Let me say that again. Our obedience in any situation stems from our devotion to the one true God and who he has revealed himself to be. So let me read Romans 13, verses 1 to 7. Everyone must submit to governing authorities, for all authority comes from God, and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. So anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and they will be punished. For the authorities do not strike fear in people who are doing right, but in those who are doing wrong. Would you like to live without fear of the authorities? Do what is right, and they will honor you. 
The authorities are God's servants sent for your good. But if you are doing wrong, of course you should be afraid, for they have the power to punish you. They are God's servants sent for the very purpose of punishing those who do what is wrong. So you must submit to them, not only to avoid punishment, but also to keep a clear conscience. Pay your taxes, too, for these same reasons, for government workers need to be paid. They are serving God in what they do. Give to everyone what you owe them. Pay your taxes and government fees to those who collect them, and give respect and honor to those who are in authority. So recognizing that God is our ultimate authority does not give us license to disobey human authority. In fact, just the opposite is true. It means that we have an even greater reason to obey. Obedience that Christians give to the government is not so much an endorsement of that government or any individual in that government. It is an act of devotion to God. Paul gives three reasons for submitting to authority. The first is found in verses 1 and 2. We submit to civil authorities because God has put them in place. And Paul would have had this understanding because um, he was a dedicated Jewish man. And he knew from his scriptures that God had stated plenty of times in his scriptures that God was the one that put the, um, the kings in place. Um, it's, um, we can see it all through Isaiah and Daniel. In particular, I'm going to read to you from Daniel verse 2. So um, just a reminder of this particular context. Um, Nebuchadnezzar has um, just had a dream, and none of his wise men can figure out what the dream means. And so then all the wise men including Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were going to be killed. Um, and so Daniel's like, well, wait, 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 wait. Um, let's pray about this, and God will reveal the interpretation of the dream. And so he does. And, um, and then Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar what the interpretation of the dream is, and this is Daniel's praise to God. This is in um, chapter 2 verses 20 through 23. Praise the name of God forever and ever, for he has all wisdom and power. He controls the course of world events. He removes kings and sets up other kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the scholars. He reveals deep and mysterious things and knows what lies hidden in darkness, though he is surrounded by light. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors, for you have given me wisdom and strength. You have told me what we asked of you and revealed to us what the king demanded. Remember, Daniel is in Babylon because he was taken captive by Babylonians when they ransacked Jerusalem. And so he is under a pagan king, and he is um, far, far away from his homeland, and yet... Daniel very clearly right here recognizes that God has set Nebuchadnezzar up as a king. And so you need to remember that this would have been part of Paul, who Paul was. This, this informed Paul's thinking on government um, was that not only did God set in place the kings of Israel or the, um, or the benevolent kings, um, throughout the centuries, God set in place all authority. And so Paul is speaking from that location um, 
as he writes to the Romans. In verses 3 and 4, we're given um, our second reason for why we are to submit to civil authority. Let me just read those verses again. For the authorities do not strike fear in people who are doing right, but in those who are doing wrong. Would you like to live without fear of the authorities? Do what is right, and they will honor you. The authorities are God's servants sent for your good, but if you are doing wrong, of course you should be afraid, for they have the power to punish you. They are God's servants sent for the very purpose of punishing those who do what is wrong. So we submit to civil authorities because they have the divinely given power to punish evildoers. The first one was we submit to civil authorities because God has put them in place. The second reason is because they have the divinely given power to punish evildoers. Whoever resists authorities resists what God has appointed, for the authorities are God's servants to contribute to the good of all people. I think it's helpful for us to consider that this is, this is an um, element or an example of common grace in creation, um, where God uses human rulers to provide justice, order, and civility for the governed people. And of course, um, we're talking um, God's plan and purpose in putting um, rulers in place. God's plan and purpose for that is perfect. The people that he puts in place are not perfect, and they are sinful. And um, often, the sin overtakes a ruler and can um, influence the ru ruler to um, become oppressive, abusive, um, and, and all of that stems from human selfishness and sin. Um, but we do need to keep in mind that God, it is an institution, government is an institution ordained by God to accomplish some of his purposes. Um, and Peter actually also talks about this in 1 Peter 2. Um, and I'm going to read from 1 Peter 2, verses 13 to 17. For the Lord's sake, submit to all human authority, whether the king as head of state or the officials he has appointed. For the king has sent them to punish those who do wrong and to honor those who do right. It is God's will that your honorable lives should silence those ignorant people who make foolish accusations against you. For you are free, yet you are God's slave, so don't use your freedom as an excuse to do evil. Respect everyone and love the family of believers. Fear God and respect the king. I think um, what, what Peter says in verse 15 is very important for us to keep in mind, especially... Um, as we consider um, living under pe people who are currently living under um, abusive and oppressive leaders, but people who have historically lived um, in situations that have been abusive and, and oppressive. It is God's will that your honorable lives should silence those ignorant people who make foolish accusations against you. Um, and again, let's remember that chapter 13 of Romans is in the context of Romans. I know that sounds a little bit ridiculous, but if you can remember back to what we studied last week in Romans 12, the whole last section of Romans 12 is all about what we are to be doing 
as a result of God's love and, and what God's love lived through us looks like as we interact with the people. And then he pl plunks this thing in here, this paragraph, these two paragraphs that are kind of like, really? Civil authorities? Um, and then, and we'll see, in this, see this in a couple minutes, he, he kind of concludes this thought with another couple paragraphs about love. So, um, like I said, the second reason is to avoid punishment, right? Because there's, these people have been given divinely, um, divinely given power to punish. Um, and when we live rightly and obediently, it silences, even though it doesn't seem like it silences, it takes away any reason for people to point to us as believers and be like, I mean, come on. So um, the third reason that Paul gives us in this passage for why we need to obey and submit to civil authority is that um, they it's because of our conscience. So not just because we could be punished, but because of our conscience. That's verse five. So you must so you must submit to them not only to avoid punishment, but also to keep a clear conscience. Um, it's the right thing to do. Um, and as a matter of conscience, sorry, as a matter of conscience, um, there are certain actions that are required of us. Um, when we consider, um, you know, God has placed these people in authority, and so I'm, in, I'm going to obey because it's the right thing to do. The right thing to do, then, is lived out in certain ways. Um, and so we see those ways in verses 6 and 7. Pay your taxes, too, for these same reasons. For government workers need to be paid. They are serving God in what they do. Give to everyone what you owe them. Pay your taxes and government fees to those who collect them. And give respect and honor to those who are in authority. Um, Jesus tells us in Matthew 22 um, to render to Caesar what is Caesar. This is when the Pharisees and teachers of the religious law had come, and they wanted to trap Jesus. And they said, um, we know how honest you are. You teach the way of God truthfully. You are impartial and don't play favorites. Now tell us what you think about this. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus knew their evil motives. You hypocrites, he said. Why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for the tax. When they handed him a coin, he asked, whose picture and title are stamped on it? Caesar's, they replied. Well then, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. Um, the, I'm reading from the NLT. The ESV says pay your taxes and revenue. Um, and revenue is bills or payments for goods and services. Um, Paul is just saying don't let there be um, something that you are not, you haven't already taken care of um, monetarily, or you're working to take care of it. This isn't um, a command against um, installment payments. He's saying be responsible and pay for what you, um, what you have benefited from or what you have, the um, items that you have purchased, pay for that. Um, and, um, and then he says, also, we, are, we need to give respect and honor. And um, again, keep in mind that submitting to and even honoring authority is not the same as agreeing with them or their purposes or their actions. 
um, there, are, there are ways for us to submit and obey um, even people who we disagree with, even people who enact laws that we're kind of like, I don't think so. Um, there are still ways for us to submit and, and obey. Um, now, it would be irresponsible of us if we did not consider that there are times when one's conscience actually requires disobedience to civil authorities. Um, there are examples of this in Scripture. I'm just going to point out two. One is from Acts 5, um, and this is um, a passage where Peter and the apostles were teaching, and then they were arrested, um, and they were put in jail. And so I'm going to start reading in verse 19. I'll read a few verses and then skip down to verse 26. Um, so the, they were arrested. They arrested the apostles and put them in, in the public jail. But an angel of the Lord came at night, opened the gates of the jail, and brought them out. Then he told them, go to the temple and give the people this message of life. So at daybreak, the apostles entered the temple, as they were told, and immediately began teaching. Now remember, I just said, they were teaching in the temple and were arrested and put in jail. And so they're in jail. And then, and then the, messen, uh, the angel of the Lord comes in, lets them out of jail, and says, go back and teach. And that's in complete opposition to what the, um, the officials, the high priest and officials had told them. So skipping down to verse 26, the captain went with his temple guards and arrested the apostles again, but without violence, for they were afraid of the people. They were afraid the people would stone them. Then they brought the apostles before the high council where the high priest confronted them. We gave you strict orders never again to teach in this man's name, he said. Instead, you have filled all Jerusalem with your teaching about him, and you want to make us responsible for his death. But Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human authority. And it's very clear that they needed to disobey um, this human authority because the human authority was in direct opposition to what God had required of them. And then just a shorter passage from Hebrews 11, um, verse 23. Um, that's another example of um, followers of the one true God needing to disobey civil authority. It was by faith that Moses' parents hid him for three months when he was born. They saw that God had given them an unusual child, and they were not afraid to disobey the king's command. If you remember in the story of Moses, the king's command was that all Hebrew boys would be killed upon birth. And yet, Moses' parents, following the one true God, hid him away and disobeyed the king's command uh, because of their conscience. So, John Stott says it this way, Whenever laws are enacted which contradict God's law, civil disobedience becomes a Christian duty. Uh, not, it's not just a Christian choice at this point. It is a duty of the Christian to, um, to participate in civil disobedience when um, the law goes against what God has called us to do. So in these situations, and I think you can all think of situations in present day 
um, either here in the United States or around the world, we see how important it is to recognize what God's word says is required of us. We can't just willy-nilly, oh, I don't really want to follow that law. Um, if we are going to engage in civil disobedience as Christ followers, then it has to absolutely stem from the fact that whatever law you are choosing to disobey is in direct opposition to what God calls us. Um, so, I mean, just very concisely, Micah tells us in Micah 6.8 what it is that God requires of us. O people, the Lord has told you what is good, and this is what he requires of you, to do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And, and then also in Isaiah 58, verses 6 and 7, again, um, a rather concise understanding of what it is we are required to do as followers of the one true God. This is the kind of fasting I want. Free those who are wrongly imprisoned. Lighten the burden of those who work for you. Let the oppressed go free and remove the chains that bind people. Share your food with the hungry and give shelter to the homeless. Give clothes to those who need them and do not hide from relatives who need your help. <laughs> Let me read that one again. <laughs> do not hide from relatives who need your help. So we have to know what the Word of God says we are to do. As, as his followers, we can't just make our own decisions when it's appropriate to participate in civil disobedience. We need, if we're going to consider participating in civil disobedience, we better have considered it um, while we're sitting with the Word of God, inviting the Holy Spirit to um, search our hearts, and to guide and direct us. And then if you are prompted, if the Holy Spirit is saying yes, just like the angel of the Lord said to Peter and the apostles, go and give this message of life to the people, you better obey. And, and, and the thing is, when he, when he calls us into that, he, he will be responsible for the consequences. All, the only thing that he is asking of us to do is to obey and to move out in what he requires of his people. So how do we show honor and humbly seek justice and mercy? How do we submit and follow God's command to defend the marginalized? Just like what I read in Isaiah 58, 6 and 7. I believe Paul answers that in the next two paragraphs. Let me read for us um, verses 8 through 14. Owe nothing to anyone except for your obligation to love one another. If you love your neighbor, you will fulfill the requirements of God's law. For the commandments say you must not commit adultery, you must not murder, you must not steal, you must not covet. These and other such commandments are summed up in this one commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to others, so love fulfills the requirements of God's law. This is all the more urgent, for you know how late it is. Time is running out. Wake up, for our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is almost gone. The day of salvation will soon be here. So remove your dark deeds like, like dirty clothes and put on the shining armor of right living. Because we belong to the day, we must live decent lives for all to see. Don't participate in the darkness of wild parties and drunkenness or in sexual promiscuity and and immoral living, or in quarreling and jealousy. Instead, 
clothe yourselves with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, and don't let yourself think about ways to indulge your evil desires. So not only is Paul pointing to what Jesus said in Matthew 22, 34 to 40, um, both Jesus and Paul are showing us who God is by reminding us that there is no other God besides the one true God, and that, that one true God desires for his people to reflect his character of love by loving those around them. Let me go ahead and read the passage from Matthew 22 where Jesus says the same thing. So the Pharisees, again, are questioning Jesus to trap him, and one of them um, asks this question, Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? And Jesus replied, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. So similar um, to what we read in Romans 13. Uh, love does no wrong to others, so love fulfills the requirements of God's law. So in the last four verses, um, in these last four verses, we see that believing and agreeing with the greatest commandment then spurs us on to action. Paul highlights the urgency of loving well and following Christ's example by challenging Christ's followers to pay attention to the nearness of Christ's return. So first he tells us, he tells us to cast off the works of darkness. Um, and, and what he identifies here as works of darkness, they, they are actions that are focused on self. Um, we see that particularly in verse 9. You must not commit adultery, you must not murder, you must not steal, you must not covet. And then again in verse 13, he says, um, don't participate in the darkness of wild parties and drunkenness or sexual promiscuity and immoral living or in quarreling and jealousy. All actions that have self at its center. None of those actions are about serving someone else, um, caring for someone else, um, forgiving someone, none of those actions. Those are all actions focused, focused on self. And in these comments, you can hear an allusion to what Paul started the whole letter with. Way back in Romans 1, verses 18 to 32, when he talks about um, pervasive sin that people had given themselves over to. So he's come back around, and now he's telling us that we need to walk in the light. And, and walking in the light is intentionally setting aside desires of the flesh and turning away from those desires of the flesh and turning away from self-gratification and instead choosing to practice self-sacrifice. In, instead, choosing to practice giving up our rights. Instead, choosing to practice living in a way that honors others above myself. Do you remember in, in Romans 12, we're, we're, we're told to outdo one another in seeking to honor each other. And so Paul's taking us back to that, setting aside all of those um, 
those self-centered actions. Again, remember in Romans 12, 1, what, are, what does Paul tell us to do? We need to give our bodies to God and let our bodies be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind that he will find acceptable. So again, we have to ask ourselves the question, why do we have to sacrifice ourselves? It's because we serve a God who at his very core is self-sacrificial. We're in the season of Lent right now. We are uh, commemorating and remembering um, and um, making ourselves ready to observe this ultimate sacrifice. Um, he is, he is self-sacrificial at his core. He is the only God who gave himself to his enemies. Let me read to you from Romans 5, um, verse 6. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. In verse 8, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And then verse 10, for since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. He is the only God who sacrificed himself for his enemies. He is the only God who emptied himself that we might be filled. He is the only God who humbled himself that, we, that with him we might be race, raised to new life. So who is the one true God? Um, and I, I, I've maybe quoted this verse every time I've taught in Romans, but um, I always have to go back to Exodus 34, 6, and 7 because that is the first time that God describes himself. So I'm going to quote it again. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniqui iniquity and transgression and sin. So in Romans 8, 29, Paul tells us that God guarantees that he will conform us to the likeness of his son. And in, in Romans 8, 28, he tells us that he's going to work, he's going to use everything that we experience in our lives in order to do that conforming, in order to make us into the likeness of his son. And so as we're conformed into the likeness of his son, we reflect the character of of God to the world around us. And as we are conformed to his likeness, we then, we too then will be animated by the things that animate God, mercy and grace. And we too will abound in steadfast love and faithfulness. So again, our question needs to be, why do we do any of this? We love, we honor, we sacrifice self, we obey, because he first loved us. So what I hope that you will remember from this lesson is that our obedience in any situation stems from our devotion to the one true God and the way he has revealed himself. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for continuing to stretch us, um, for continuing to call us to yourself and uh, for continuing to conform us to the likeness of your son. I ask that you would use each of us 
um, the rest of this day and into the rest of this week. And as we interact with friends and family and neighbors and coworkers, would you use each of us as vessels of your love? And would you um, shine your glory through us? In Jesus' name, amen.